there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. So glad you're along for the ride. If you're a wannabe entrepreneur or you're interested in tech or coding, and you just feel like getting an adrenaline shot of inspiration into your gluteus maximus, which is usually parked on your couch, then you are in exactly the right place. Because my next guest is someone who launched her first tech startup when she was just 20. And she's all about empowering others, especially women, if their idea will have a positive impact on the lives of other women. But before I introduce her to you, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's our weekly newsletter giving you a sneak peek at all the episodes we'll be dropping that week with an overview of each guest, please head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. And while you're there, check out the rest of the homepage and you'll see that we've organized all of our podcasts by profession. So hopefully, no matter what you're interested in learning about, we'll have interviewed a professional in that career. And if we haven't, tweet me at time, the number four coffee LLC, and let me know what we need to do. We also have interviews with experts in health, wellness, and self-care, because what good is it to have a job you love if your mental and or your physical health sucks? And I know that, friends, because I was that person. Now grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Natalie Molina Nino, the CEO of Brava Investments and the author of the fabulous new book, Leapfrog. The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. Natalie is committed to delivering returns to investors while making a catalytic impact on women in the world. Not the car, we're talking about the impact. A technologist and coder by training, Natalie is an entrepreneur and a storyteller at heart. Natalie, welcome to Time for Coffee. I know you're not caffeinated with like some Colombian brew, but are you ready to go? I am. And don't pull my Colombian card, please. (laughs) Should I pull the, uh, is it Ecuador? Is that where the other parent is from? (laughs) Half Ecuadorian, half Colombian. But you know what? My dancing skills make up for my lack of caffeine. I have no doubt. And your enthusiasm for life as well. (laughs) So Natalie, you are the CEO of Brava Investments, and that's a company you founded with a super cool mission. And I want to read from your homepage, which has a quote from the Washington Post newspaper. It says, Brava aims to create a billion-dollar portfolio from scratch by bankrolling startups on one condition. The businesses must disproportionately benefit women. First, Natalie, what is Brava? And what are you doing there in the role of CEO? 
Thank you. First of all, um, that's one of my favorite quotes. We had the privilege of being invited by the former White House administration in 2016 to launch our company at South by South Lawn, which was a collaboration that they had made with South by Southwest. So it's sort of a mini South by Southwest in the South Lawn. And then the Washington Post took notice of our launch and wrote that beautiful piece. And, you know, they did a good job of representing the idea that we have, which is I look at the world of women entrepreneurs. And I see what I've been calling the valley of death, which is that we have a problem not only in investing in women entrepreneurs, 2.5% of all venture capital goes to women-led businesses. But if you slice that even narrower and you look at the percentage of women of color that are getting investment, that percentage is 0.2%. It's absolutely pathetic. And so you could simply say, look, let's throw more money at the problem. But I think that we've got to be a little more thoughtful than that. And I'm a systems thinker. And I think of why, why are we not putting more money into the hands of women of color, given that we know that women are starting more businesses than men. And we also know that of those businesses, eight out of every 10 woman owned business is started by a woman of color. So we're giving the least amount of money to the single most entrepreneurial community in this country. The math simply doesn't add up. And what I realized is that if you look at what's happening with all of these women that are starting companies, 98% of them are staying small. 98% of them are beneath the $1 million a year revenue mark. So something is preventing them from scaling. And I determined through my work at Barnard at the Athena Center for Leadership Studies, The research is pointing us to a few different things. One of them is that we don't have the networks. We don't have, meaning the cultural capital. We don't have the personal capital to be able to invest 50, 100K into our first businesses. Most families in the United States don't have $5,000 in their savings account. And then lastly, we don't have friends and family who can invest in our companies either. And so I decided that if I'm going to solve that problem, it's more complicated than just investing in women entrepreneurs. We've got to invest in companies that put money into the wallets of as many women as possible at scale and thereby create entire ecosystems of women who can get out of survival mode and into the place where they can actually scale these businesses that they're already starting. So that's a a long-winded way of saying that's fundamentally the problem that I'm looking to solve. That is amazing. That is fantastic. And I love the fact that you went to the root of the problem. I, I, you know, I think that we, and this is another thing that you will find on my website, we focus on outcomes, not optics. I think that we have a lot of people writing fancy headlines, talking about investing in this and investing in that. And the reality is, is that if you look at the numbers from 2016 to 2017, we went, depending on what study you look at, from roughly 5% of venture capital going to women-owned businesses down to 2.5. So despite all the lip service and all the headlines and all the attention that's being paid to this issue, the numbers are actually going backward. So I may invest in a company that was founded by two men, And that might not look nice on a headline and it might not look nice on my annual report. But if that company is, for example, curing breast cancer, what do I care what the headlines look like? I am focused on the outcomes, not on the headlines. So what do you do, Natalie, as CEO? What are the functions of your particular position right now? Well, we're only two years old. We had our our two-year anniversary last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You know, a third of all companies don't make it past their first two years. So we're, we're now in the two-third rank. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that means that, you know, we're small or scrappy. It means that as the CEO, especially like me as a, a scrappy CEO com- coming from, you know, immigrant family, I, I wear many hats, which means that I have no problem answering phones one day and giving a keynote in front of 5,000 people the next. But I do try, certainly as an operations person and as a business builder, I, I try to focus and I try to focus on my swim lane where I know that I'm strong. And so, you know, one of my biggest jobs is to do what I'm doing right now, right? To be a spokeswoman for the company, to build a brand and to make sure that the world knows that we exist and that the world knows that this is the sort of business that investors should invest in. And I want people to copy our thesis. I want people to see that the thesis has legs, that we're making both uh, solid returns for our investors as well as, you know, a real meaningful change in our society. And so that's, that's job number one is to really be the figurehead and to be the ambassador for the brand. The second thing that I do is I've built a team and I'm constantly building building teams. And so if you look at the list of advisors and the people that work for me and with me, I have been the architect of that organization. And I try to go with the rule of thumb of hiring and surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me and that complement the areas where I'm weak. And so that would be my, my second job. And then the third one is that when we bring on companies to invest in, my job is to also help them succeed, to be their consultant, to connect them to people they need to be connected to, and to just make sure that they're successful. And I tend to roll up my sleeves and be very hands-on. So how do you organize your days? Because clearly, as you said, you're wearing a lot of hats. How do you prioritize the different things that you need to get done in your role as CEO of a scrappy startup? Well, first of all, I build fail-safes, right? So I make sure that in every sort of category of things, if we get to some crunch times and, and we have, for example, the week that we launched the book, you can imagine I was not useful for many, many other things other than the, the press circuit that we did. I make sure that there are people who can be sort of my backups and who I am comfortable sending into a meeting, reviewing a deck, talking to a founder. And so I've built that sort of organization around myself. But in terms of how I structure my day, there are a few things that I don't compromise on. One of them, for example, is that my mornings before 10 a.m. are my time. And that means meditation. That means walking my dog. That means if, you know, because I'm a night owl, if it just means sleeping in, well, then it means sleeping in. But before 10 a.m. is my time. It's sacred. It's untouchable. If there's an emergency, if there's something that's critical that cannot be moved, we make an occasional exception. Uh, But generally before 10 a.m. is my time. And then the rest of the time, you know, I make sure that, for example, the quality time when I can sit and actually have human face-to-face build relationship kind of time, that that's blocked. So for example, we don't do calls during the lunch hour. We don't do calls during the dinner time because that's when I can actually meet face to face and get to know people, build relationships with investors, have some quality time with a founder that's struggling. And then we schedule business in between those slots. But there are a few anchors like the ones that I mentioned that kind of keep me sane and keep you know my schedule from being a game of Tetris. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point, Natalie, because it's all about kind of keeping the positive energy flowing. And without making that sound woo-woo, I mean, it really is about making sure that you're able to function as your best self. 100%. And I think, you know, especially when you have an organization or partners or these sorts of things, you know, people rely on you to to show up completely, right? And to your point, you know, to, to be that best self. Um, nobody wants a tired, grumpy Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> or a 
tired, grumpy Andrea, for that matter. I I promise you. Natalie, I want to turn to your new book in a moment. But before I do, could you help those Java junkies who want to break into the startup world? And I know your book is getting into that, but just better understand the realities versus the Hollywood kind of glamorization of that industry. Oh, I love that. I love that because the thing is, is, you know, we definitely live in a world that glamour, that, that creates all this glitz around what is ultimately hard, hard work, right? Long, long hours and a path that most people don't survive. And so, um, and most companies I should say don't survive. And so I would say that the biggest thing that I would say that I would, I would advise people to be aware of is that, and my book is full of these stories, is that the path that you're being fed, the, the template formula, you know, step one, step two, sort of classic way to start a startup that we get fed, whether it be Shark Tank or, you know, all on the covers of every business magazine, that is not the only way. As with so many things, what we're being fed is one way to be and function and live as an entrepreneur. One of the classic tropes, for example, is that you've got to get an investor, right? You've got to go on Shark Tank and you've got to get somebody to give you a check and you've got to give up a portion of your company. But you know what? Nina Vaca, an Ecuadorian immigrant just like me, started her company Pinnacle 15 years ago. And today she is the fastest growing woman-owned company in the United States. She's about to hit a billion dollars in revenue and she never took a penny of outside investment. And so, and, and my book is full of stories like this because I think that the world needs to see that there are alternative storylines and there are alternative paths that do not look like the classic ones that we're being fed. And so I think that's probably my biggest message. So I kind of want to ask you why you wrote Leapfrog. And I know you've touched on it in a couple of answers, but I'm sure that there's a, a longer kind of more comprehensive answer behind it. <laughs> 170 years long. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty long. Yeah. So I would say that the fundamental reason for me to have taken, by the way, my pre 10 a.m. slot for seven months, Ooh. which I gave up in order wow. to write the book, is because the World Economic Forum published a study a few years ago that said that at the rate that we're at, we will get to gender parity in 170 years. And what I also found, and this was an interesting process as we were, for example, deciding what was going to be on the cover of this book, when we were thinking of the name, when we were thinking of the byline and all the different sort of copy, I wanted the word shortcuts somewhere in the cover of the book. I mean, if I would have had my druthers, I might have called it shortcuts. But what we did is Random House, who have been a phenomenal partner throughout this entire process, we tested the word shortcut and it tested poorly. And the reason it tested poorly is because women, especially women of color, heard the word shortcut and thought, cheating. And that was really disturbing for me because if we're going to shrink 170 years, well, for God's sakes, we're going to have to embrace the shortcut. There's no other way. The next generation need us to do that. They require us to take these shortcuts. Otherwise, we're never going to shrink this timeline. And yet we have this concept that shortcuts are a bad thing, that they equate to cheating. And yet when we look at every person in a position of power and influence and massive amounts of capital, guess what? 
they all took shortcuts. And they either took shortcuts intentionally and by design, or they took shortcuts and didn't even realize that they were taking those shortcuts. Just by virtue of not having been born on the south side of Chicago, they had a leg up. And so whether they're conscious of it or not, Everyone who has been successful took a shortcut of some kind. Some of them are ethical, some of them are not. And my book is essentially 50 shortcuts and a big ass pep talk at the front of the book <laughs> telling people, you've got to get over this idea that short shortcuts are a bad thing. I couldn't put it on the cover of the book, but I put, it, I put it in there as kind of a Trojan horse as the really key message that I'm trying to get across. So can you give us an example of a shortcut that you feature? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I feature in one of the hacks is called use your woman card. And by use your woman card, I'm talking about the grants, the scholarships, the incubators, the loans, the various different equity investments that are out there with amazing terms that are geared towards women, towards people of color, towards veterans, towards people with disabilities. I met with the Small Business Administration in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, and they told me that they had earmarked $4 billion specifically for capital that would go into small businesses, small and medium businesses that fit into the various different buckets that they had outlined, like people with disabilities, women, people of color, etc., and two billion of it had been deployed and two billion of it was sitting there languishing without anybody claiming and using this capital. What? And that's, yes. Isn't that insane? Insane. And so, you know, shame on them for not promoting these programs well enough, but also shame on us who need this capital and who can use it to scale our businesses who aren't making the most of it. And that's part of the mission of the book is like, that's the sort of thing that'll allow you to skip 10 steps in your growth. And it's there and it's available for us to use. And so how do you find it? Do you go on their website? You do, but I have also provided some ways to find it in a consolidated way. So for example, one of my close, one of my dearest friends, Nellie Galan, who is the first Latina to be the head of any major network. She was the president of Telemundo. She wrote a book called Self Made that I reference in my book. Um, and she has a whole chapter called Hidden Money in America. And then on her website, which is becomingselfmade.com, she has a whole section where she outlines all the different programs, whether you're a Native American woman, a Muslim woman, a woman with disabilities, a woman who started her first business and she catalogs all the different opportunities like that that exist all around the country. Well, guess what? I'm going to be going on that website and looking it up myself because hello, <laughs> time for coffee. <laughs> okay, Natalie. So one chapter goes deep into why we should worry about success and not about failure. Why do you frame it like that? You know, I frame it that way because after having worked now with thousands of entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs, I find that we tend to focus on that worst case scenario, right? And you get insurance for that case of somebody suing you and you do all of these things, which I won't say are not worthy of our time. Of course, we've got to think of the worst case scenario and build those safety nets. But when we become obsessed with the worst case scenario, we leave a blind spot in our horizon. And the thing that we leave out is what happens in the best case scenario. The examples that I give are, for example, a friend of mine named Avni Patel, who started an incubator called Trendseeder. And the reason that she started it is because in the fashion industry, what she has found is that you've got fashion designers or people just in the, the, the world of fashion who build businesses, who thrive and get to that point where they're about a million dollars in revenue or so. And then they get their first big order from Barney's or Saks Fifth Avenue or something of the kind. And they choke and they literally die 
on the vine in the most successful pivot point of their business because they were not prepared for that best case scenario. They didn't have the supply chain set up, set up. They didn't have their vendors lined up. They didn't have the manufacturing and distribution set up all because instead of obsessing on the best case scenario, they were too focused on the worst. That is so interesting. I love that. You have another chapter that tells readers to forget about following their passion and instead find things they want to punch. Why? (laughs) That's another nod to my friend Nellie Galan. She has a chapter in her book called Follow Your Bliss is BS. And I agree with her. I think that this business that we hear about all the time and women especially get fed this line of follow your bliss and everything will just magically fall into place. Well, if your bliss happens to be that you love underwater basket weaving, I don't know if starting a business in that category is necessarily going to be the secret to your success. And so instead, what I tell people is focus on that thing that you want to punch, that thing that makes you so frustrated and annoyed that there is probably a good chance that somebody else feels the same way and that that is a problem that is dying for a solution of some kind. And if you make a list of all these things that you want to punch, and in fact, if you wake up every morning and you make that list and you add to that list every single day, you're going to end up with a very beautiful list of probably great seeds of ideas that can actually become viable, marketable, and profitable businesses. Hmm. I mean, I have to say personally, I did not follow that approach. Time for Coffee is still young. I'm following my what I care deeply about. Having said that, I think it's great to always plant new seeds. Well, and you know, it doesn't mean that you can't do both. It's just that if you start with something that is needed in the world, I mean, look at me, I'm, I'm just like you, right? I started something that I feel incredibly passionate about. Bra is the culmination of probably, you know, my entire life's passion. But I did anchor it in something that I knew the market needed and basically a hole in the market that I knew wasn't being filled. And that's really where I, I, I encourage people to start if they're looking at building businesses at scale. Great. Okay. Well, that's it because I saw that hole. So I'm trying to fill that. All right. I want to talk with you a little bit about your time as an undergrad, Natalie, and what you studied when you were at the University of Colorado in Boulder. But before I do, could you share how you personally have leveraged your multicultural, multilingual background as a huge professional asset? And in fact, you've called it cultural agility. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, for anybody that's ever watched those hilarious Key and Peel skits, and if you haven't, dear God, do, because they are absolutely hilarious. They have some skits on code switching, right? So they'll, they'll have, you know, two African-Americans that are speaking very sort of proper white English business speak. And then five seconds later, talking more like they talk among their friends in whatever the local colloquial patois is, right? And that code switching, that ability to speak these different languages or dialects or even just accents, depending on what audience you're in, that's kind of what I mean by cultural agility. And I think that for me, having grown up, I would say tri-cultural, because even though Ecuador and Colombia are right next to each other, um, my father's family was absolutely working class. And my mother's family were more educated sort of political family. And so just navigating that and the language and the culture between those two families. And then on top of that, being in a 
Spanish-speaking home. We required Spanish-speaking only. There was no English allowed in the house. And then going to school, you know, in the United States and having been born and raised here, I was exposed to all these different cultures. I had to navigate those cultures and switch languages, switch cultures. And I think what it did is it allowed me to then go into my world of globalization. So in my career, I specialized in helping American companies go abroad and succeed internationally. So if you can imagine, Disney Interactive has a very popular game that is wildly successful in the United States, but now that game has to go into France, Germany, Japan, China. And there are all sorts of things about that game that have to be not just translated, but adjusted. And one mistake could cause a geopolitical disaster, right? Um, And those are the sorts of things that I did in my career. And I look back and I would never have imagined it. But yeah, growing up multicultural absolutely gave me an edge. Now, I can totally see that in a Latin context. How did you apply it? You just mentioned Asia, other European countries where they don't necessarily speak Spanish. How did you apply that mindset to those different environments? You know, I think what what being multicultural taught me was not so much about just the language. It was about that agility. It's about using that muscle, not making assumptions, knowing that my frame of mind is a construct of my culture, of my language, of all of these different things that I knew, but not taking it for granted that anyone would share that, right? And being open and being able to cross those bridges and and really be a bridge across cultures that it goes and transcends, I think, far beyond language. And I think that that's fundamentally what allowed me to build at its largest a 70,000 team in over 40 countries, right? And I think that the only way to have done that is to have sort of been predisposed to be comfortable in all of these places. I think as a kid, I had a choice. I could either believe that I belonged nowhere because I would go back to South America and my family would say, oh, you're Americanized, right? And and you're not like them. And then in the US, I'm, I'm everyone's token Latina friend, right? And I could have either taken that as I belong nowhere, or I could have done what I chose, which is to really embrace the idea that actually I belong anywhere. That is beautiful. That really is. And it shows that with a sensitivity and an appreciation for the differences that exist in these different countries, you can kind of find your path. You can find your way. Natalie, you have said that storytelling is one of the most important skills in business. Why is that? I think because at the end of the day, whether it's your staff or your customer, people don't work, in my opinion, and not they don't bring their whole selves and, and really maximize their potential, which, which is what you want people who work for you to do or work with you to do. People don't work for money. And I think that the same is true with consumers. I think that if I go to a store and I look at two, say, jackets at a sporting goods store, I look at, say, a North Face jacket or a Patagonia jacket, I don't know what North Face stands for. I don't know the story that compels me to feel an emotional connection to North Face. But I sure as hell know the Patagonia story. And I know Yvonne Chouinard's story and his book, Let My People Surf. And I know that they take 1% of their proceeds and they give them to the earth. I know what that company stands for. So all things being equal, I'm going to choose the company that has a story that hits me in the heart somewhere, right? And the same thing is true for our employees and the people that I partner with. I don't expect them to simply 
bring their whole selves because I pay them a salary or because they have an upside and they have, you know, they stand to gain something economically. I know that the only way that I'm going to maximize what I get from these people is to have them be a part of something that's bigger than just the sum of its parts, right? And that to me means telling a compelling story that does all the things that good stories do, right? It moves you, it educates you, it makes you feel a part of something larger than life. So part of your life was as a young Java junkie when you were at Colorado University in Boulder and you were an environmental engineering major. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Natalie? <laughs> yes, I was going to save the world. I was going to save the environment. And, you know, I'm still very, very passionate about that. In fact, I have finally, it's funny, like at, at my age, I have finally had this like full circle moment where I have been able to combine these two passions because there's there's a book called Drawdown, which has become the foremost book on all things related to climate change. And what they do is they chronicle and they investigate all of the most important ways to save the environment and to basically reverse climate change. And what they have done is they have prioritized the things that are more likely to move the dial that are available to us right now that we can do. And two of the top 10 things involve investing in women. And so I finally found this connection between supporting women entrepreneurs and climate change. But as a kid, what I wanted to do is I thought that the world of being a scientist was the ultimate form of freedom. I envisioned that scientists living in the Amazon rainforest and not answering to anyone <laughs> and you know, just sort of being free and doing this great work that was going to change the world. And, you know, two things happened. One of them is I actually went to the Amazon rainforest and I lived there for a while with a study. And I found that actually those people have bosses too. And in fact, you know, <laughs> there's a bureaucrat somewhere over here that could cut the funding at any moment that requires them to pack up their stuff you know, get on a flight and fly back because somebody decided to pull their funding. And so that was the biggest thing that I realized is that scientists are not free. And freedom was definitely a big part of what I thought that I was getting out of that career. Um, and the second thing that I learned is that, you know, the dot com boom started to happen right in front of my face. And when I started my first tech startup and ended up dropping out of college to pursue it, I realized that I was one, good at it. And two, that there was something there. I didn't know what it was, but I just sort of had an intuition that there was something there that I needed to pursue that was valuable. So did I hear you correctly? Did you say you dropped out before you graduated? I most certainly did. I was at that point starting my starting a graduate program at CU that was actually in the world of cartography. And so it was the very beginning of GIS, GPS, where we were just starting to build commercial products out of these satellite map images. And so it was a, it was an exciting time to be in Boulder. You know, the atomic clock is there. The Center for Atmospheric Research is there. It was a really exciting time to be in that field. But it was also a really exciting time to, to start a tech startup. And at the end of the day, I was going to school. I was running my first company. And I probably could have managed having those two things and juggling them at the same time. But one third thing happened, which for the first time in my life, I went public with this part of the story in my book, um, which was that I got diagnosed with cervical cancer. And it was that third thing that really was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And it forced me to have to choose. And I chose my company over school. Wow. Um well, thank you for sharing that, Natalie. And not that this matters one whit, but when you dropped out, were you getting a graduate degree or you were finishing your undergrad? I was, as as so many leapfroggers in my book, I was double dipping. <laughs> 
So I was in the process of finishing my undergrad, but I had already started and been admitted into a master's program that allowed me to basically do, there was a little bit of overlap at that point. So I was finishing my undergraduate and starting already into the cartography program that I had been accepted in. And I dropped out of both. And then I, I basically finished the undergrad, but dropped out of, at that point, my master's, which I, I never finished. I did go back to graduate school at Columbia University a few years ago, but not to study cartography. I studied theater that time. <laughs> right. And for Java junkies, you want to listen to the Espresso Shots episode that we'll be dropping. I'm not sure in which order, if it's already out there. Great. Make sure you listen to it because Natalie talks about why she wanted to get her graduate school degree in theater, which is a wonderful story. Natalie, if you could, one of the questions I try to ask all my guests on Time for Coffee is to share a story with our Java Junkie community about a low time for you professionally. We've all had them. We, Some of us have had many, whether it's a terrible boss, whether it's difficult colleagues, whether it's we're in over our head and we've got, you know, fake it until you make it going, whatever it is. In my case, I was fired twice in my 40s. But if you could, what is more important here is the story of resilience, how you came through the other side, how you persevered. You know, I'm... I'm not for cookie cutter responses, as I'm sure you've noticed. Um, I've noticed. Uh, in 2003, excuse me, in 2002, uh, during the dot-com crash, a group of people who had basically at that point control of a company that I had built up, again, in a joint venture with the oldest publicly traded company in the United States. And, and they had a culture that was like the oldest publicly traded company in the United States, right? There were no women at the executive level and all the big boy deals were done at the golf course. And I had spent all of my energy shielding my team from that parent company's culture. And unfortunately, I was only successful to an extent. And when the dot-com crash started to happen around us, I had to fire 300 people and I went around and my my team ended up calling this the death tour because I figured, you know, if I had if I had taken so much care to hire these people, go into each of these countries and do the hiring sprints that we had done where you meet people face to face, you interview them, you hire them, over time you get to know them, you meet their spouses and their children and you know, you build these relationships. I was not about to send an email to fire these people. And so I went all around the world looking people in the face and firing 299 people and then fired myself as the 300th. And then post that, I wish I could give you a lovely story about how I quickly bounced back and got my act together. But it was such a gut-wrenching experience that I took a year off. So 2002 to 2003, I took a one-year sabbatical. I gave my then business partner strict instructions not to contact me for at least a year. <laughs> Unlike me, um, he had four children and a lot of responsibilities, and he couldn't just take a year off, although I'm sure he would have liked to. But 11 months later, he said, you know, I know that I wasn't supposed to call you for a year, but unlike you, I couldn't take a year off. So I basically wound down what I could at the last company. And now I'm at our largest competitor. So he had jumped ship and gone to another company looking to replicate what we had built at the previous one. But he needed me to do that. And so 11 months in, he had promised a bunch of our customers that I was coming back. <laughs> and, uh, and he had gotten them to sign contracts and he had gotten them to agree to give us a bunch of business. And now he was calling me and saying, I need you. It's Friday fly here because I, I, I promised that you'd be at a meeting on Monday. 
<laughs> so it took me a year. I wish I could say I bounced back quickly, but I needed that 11 months just to recover from that experience. And do you feel like the experience changed you in a way that has made you more, I don't know, successful? And I don't mean that just in financial success. It, it taught me a lot of things. It taught me, one, that investors aren't always right. It taught me now as an investor how not to be. It also taught me that one of my strengths and also just like one of the things that, that I, I love or don't love, you know, sort of putting these buckets into the things that I want sort of in my life. One of the things that I do not do well with is managing people. It is not my favorite thing. And so one of the first hires that I typically make when I start a company is somebody who is a people person, who is a great manager, somebody who when somebody comes to them and is offended because Susie got the corner office instead of them is not going to roll their eyes the way that I would. So um, I know my strengths and managing people is probably not one of them. And that's why one of the first key hires that I make is somebody who does thrive being empathetic and managing large groups of people because we all have our strengths and that's not one of mine. Absolutely. Well, and that's great because self-awareness is so important in, in everything. Natalie, final time for coffee question here. If you could go back to Colorado University at Boulder and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? The advice that I would give myself, because I'm not one for regrets, is that the decisions that you're making, the calls that you're having to make, the pivots the changing of the trajectory, the abandoning of one plan and embracing another, they're happening because they need to happen. And your judgment, just because you're 20, just because you're 30, just it doesn't matter. Your judgment is your judgment. And the path that you're on, even if it's circuitous, will get you where you're going, even if it's not what you planned. And I think that what that would have done is it wouldn't have changed the decisions that I made and it wouldn't have changed the trajectory, but it would have allowed me to be less hard on myself when I made those calls. Because I look back at how those decisions were made and now I tell the story and it all sounds like this beautiful, you know, it might be circuitous, but it all sort of makes sense in hindsight. But in the moment, I was really hard on myself and I think that I would have done it with more joy and less agita. Yeah, more self-love. Absolutely. Totally. Natalie, you are a remarkable woman. I am so excited that you made time for coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. I wish you a bestseller with Leapfrog, the new revolution for women entrepreneurs, continued success in building your fabulous company, Brava Investments, and just all good things. You know, Andrew, it is just, it, I just have to say it has been such a pleasure and such an honor and your enthusiasm for what you do is absolutely contagious. I'm going to take it through and hopefully have it get, it get me through not just today, but this week and this month. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.